Well, we are in part two here of Zephaniah. Uh, if you want to turn to chapter three, we're going to pick up on verse nine here in a moment and uh, read our text and, and pray. Well, since the beginning, beginning of time, people have been making music and singing. We see in our Bibles, just shortly after the creation account in Genesis, uh, instruments are being made, people are singing. There's many reasons people sing. There's endless topics people sing about. If it's uh, haunted hotels or baby sharks or ones that people want to sing and dance about, things like the YMCA. I mean, we, we can find all kinds of reasons. There's songs of joy, there's songs of despair, songs of sadness and loss. Uh, probably the most famous type of song that we continue to return to over and over again is, is the love song. Each of us probably have some romantic reference of, of a love song in our mind, in our life. There's millions of love songs probably recorded and written over history. But we, but we sing over things that, that we love, things that, that capture our hearts, that, that own our affections in some significant way. And that's why there are so many songs that are sung over broken loves, that those very things have, have an effect to break our hearts, and there are those things that make us sore. And they move us to the most unlikely people to even sing, right? The love makes the most inept singer, maybe, maybe a dad who hasn't sung on key his entire life, want to lean over the crib of his baby child and sing a lullaby. One of the features of God's people is that they are a, a singing people. We sing because God has done something, an affection. Something has happened in us, in our hearts, and we sing to God because of who he is, because of what he's done, because he's worthy, he's, he's perfect, he's lovely, he's powerful. And yet we're going to encounter today in Zephaniah is, is a reality that really should boggle all of our minds this God, this God of power and holiness, staggering majesty and glory, and even as we've been seeing of judgment, he is a God that chooses to sing. And he's a God who chooses to sing over his people. And in light of what we've seen about the condition of the people of Israel, we witness what should be astounding. This condition of Israel, their rebellion, their sin, their idolatry, and yet God would choose to sing over them. And that God would choose to sing over us. This is, the, this is a staggering picture that we're going to see today. And that I hope we are reminded of in our own heart. That the love and the grace of God is so powerful towards his people. His grace that we see traced from creation through the Old Testament, through the prophets, into the New Testament all the way to, to the end, that last day. And so let's read this morning and then we'll pray. We're going to begin at verse 9. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. 
For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Well, Lord, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to to come under that fountain this morning, the, the fountain of your steadfast love, the fountain of your faithfulness, the fountain of your mercy. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, as we have just sung, we want to see you. We want to encounter Christ. And so would you come, Holy Spirit, and open up our hearts, our eyes to hear from you today for your glory, Lord, and that we know for our joy. And everyone said, amen. Well, last week we, we encountered a, a very sobering, uh, depressing reality of judgment, judgment against God's uh, against God's people, against the world because of sin. And we saw this first section in Zephaniah where God was laying out this, this theme, this focal point in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, where the day of wrath comes against the sins of Judah. And the second section, roughly chapter 2 through the first part of chapter 3, judgment against all nations, And yet embedded in this pronouncement of judgment was this call to repent, to find shelter and refuge in the Lord. A quick recap of of something that I feel is helpful for us when we read the prophets so we seek to understand how they see and how they're speaking this idea of sort of a near and far fulfillment of what is unfolding. One commentator called this prophetic horizon. So think of it as the prophet walking up, as you're maybe hiking up towards a mountain, you see this one mountain and behind that you see this peak over that mountain. As you get on top of that first one, you see there's a larger mountain behind that and then another mountain behind that. And this reference to this day of the Lord, this focal point of Zephaniah, the prophet sees foremost on the horizon judgment was going to come against uh, Judah. Destruction against them in exile in Babylon. They're in their history. This day of destruction would unfold against other nations like Assyria It was a day of distress and anguish, the day of wrath of the Lord. 
uh, chapter 1, verse 18. It was a, a micro version of what was to come, and yet behind that horizon was another bigger day, a not yet for Zephaniah, but an already that we have encountered because of what unfolds in the New Testament history with Jesus, his first coming, his first advent, the day of the Lord, where he takes the judgment of God against the sins of his people on the cross. And John three thirty six, we, we see this, uh, this idea captured. Salvation, life in Jesus, in contrast to God's wrath and judgment. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So implication, those who are in the Son, no wrath remains. There is life, yet there is some wrath that does remain, which points to this sort of third horizon, Christ's second coming, the final day of judgment. And what comes with that is God's glorious cosmic renewal and restoration. And what we find here in Zephaniah, what we just read this in chapter 3, coming off of this sobering, deafening warning of judgment against Judah's sins and the world, we see that it doesn't end there. That's not the end of the story. The day of the Lord has a simultaneous nature to it. There's two sides of one coin. There is this day of destruction and wrath, yet it is also a day of beauty, of joy, of redemption for those people who find refuge in God. God does something radical. There's a radical transformation within God's people. Verse 9 marks this, this change, this, this rise of the sun, this new day dawning after this storm. The judgment of the nations also becomes the conversion of the nations. So look at verse 9, that you see this four at this time. Well, what, what is that time? Well, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at verse 8. At that time is the time when the earth is consumed, this dark day of God's judgment. God not only is dealing with sins, he is working redemption on that day. And what does this day look like? I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech. What is, what is going on? Well, here scholars would see God pointing to a, the reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. What happened there? Well, everyone spoke one language, and in their oneness, they sought to stand up against God, to make a name for themselves. Their speech was not directed toward God, but a lack of trust in God and a trust in their own might and what they could achieve and what they could do. They were building a city apart from God, but now here, God makes a people of one accord. They, they call upon the name of the Lord and they serve him in one accord. Maybe your translation says they, they stand shoulder to shoulder, worshiping the Lord, side by side, voices trusting, directing their hope and trust in God. Now this is a stark contrast of what we've been seeing in the broken covenant community of Israel so far. They are transformed rather than self-seeking, proud, autonomous. They turn to him in refuge. They turn to him in worship. And the unifying, purifying that the Lord is doing in Israel, it, 
It's beyond that. It's not just Israel. It says it's for all of those who call on the name of the Lord. The scope broadens, so judgment would extend to all nations, but also restoration comes to all nations. Worshippers scattered beyond the rivers of Cush or from the east. And the fact that they have pure speech indicates something beyond just what they say. It's pointing to something happening deep within the heart of of God's people. The Bible tells us out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we see here is a people now not just simply giving God religious lip service. Something has happened deep within them. God has done something deep in his people. The Lord removes something from within them and he puts something better within them. Look what begins to unfold in our following verses in 12 through 13. The Lord cleanses. He gives them a pure speech on that day. And then he removes from them the shame of their past rebellion. He removes from them the shame of what they had done against the Lord. He removes the proud, exultant, arrogant boasters that would no longer be the haughty in his holy mountain. And so shame has been taken away. Their pride has been taken away. And instead the Lord infuses within the people humility, a humble people. And now his kingdom is full of lowly people who seek refuge in him. And there is no injustices. There is no lies. There are no deceit. The, the good shepherd creates a safe place for his people to graze and rest, and there is no fear any longer. Verse 13. This is, this is a glorious picture. This is a picture of a, a future renewal and worship of Israel, but, but there's something deeper going on. This, this is a picture of perfection. This is a picture of sinlessness. Commentator John McKay, he says this, the bliss of what God will provide for his people has an allure which appeals to those who have experienced bitterness of life and to those who are sensitive to their own failings. But the description of the inhabitants of the restored Jerusalem also serves to notice of how great a change is needed before an individual is fit to join them. It requires nothing less than being born again. Something deeply transformational has to happen in the heart of God's people. This restored kingdom that God calls broken and bitter people to, taking their shame away, and calls the broken sinner who feels too far gone, come by something he does through his transforming grace. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of a day when God would give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. This is what we're witnessing. A transformation at the deepest level. This is what Jesus spoke of when he said we must be born again by the spirit. Dead hearts, lifeless and lost that come alive and makes one fit to live in his presence and then gain all the benefits of his kingdom by the gospel. This is, this is gospel transformation that we are seeing. When the Lord removes something and then he puts in 
something. He purges sin and he casts without. He cleanses our hearts and the Lord then gifts a righteous perfection upon the people. Jesus takes away and he places in. This is what Peter tells us about. 1 Peter 3.8. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous Jesus Christ, for the unrighteous us, that he may do what? That he might bring us to God. And when he brings us to God, when we have that kind of access to him, what is the response? Well, what began as a call for silence in chapter 1, verse 7, before the Lord, his holiness of all. Now we see on this side, if you are on this side of the day of the Lord, the only appropriate response is worship. It is song. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. God restoring this city, the city of his people, the dwelling place, the restored people, a restored dwelling place. And the right response to this glorious redemption is singing. It is, it is a loud singing. It flows from the gracious act of God who has taken away judgments, who's cleared away his enemies, who's removed all fear of harm from his people. And notice this pattern that we've seen with this phrase, in your midst. I will remove from your midst the proud, verse 11. I will leave in your midst humble God-seeking people, verse 12. And now the Lord your God is in your midst. He He has prepared a home for his people, a dwelling place among his redeemed, his beautified, beloved people. And in verse 17, we're told more of what he will do. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. And let's just let these words just impact your heart. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult or he will rejoice over you with loud singing. Yahweh, the Lord, becomes the ultimate singer. And he is singing over his beloved people with gladness and joy. The Savior King is in their midst. And this stunning reality, his gladness over them, his singing over them, his joy over them. How is this possible? Why? Because of his profound grace and his profound love for people. We sing over those we feel affection for. Matthew Henry said this, the great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. 
He loves to love you. The Lord continues to speak words of encouragement and hope. If this was not enough about his initiation on the behalf of his people, we see in verse 18 this repetition of I will, the I will activity of God. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in or I will bring you home. At that time, I will gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The I will promise is sealed with thus says the Lord. His word does not fail. His promises towards his people are true and trustworthy and good every time. And God will bring his people home. All the naysayers, all the doubters, all his enemies will be shut up. And his people will be with him. This promise was to Israel to return from captivity. Those who were mourning this festival worship, he would regather his people. He was going to deal with the oppressors. And in the eyes of the world, judgment is going to be seen. Judgment is going to be felt. And in the eyes of the world, God's glory was going to be on full display. And what was his glory? How was his glory going to be displayed? a redeemed and restored people by a savior king. His redeemed people was part of his way to display his glory. Considering our our horizon, something significant here for Israel, but there's something bigger going on. This is is a, a, a gathering of worshipers there immediately in history, but it launches us to a day, the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord where Jesus, the mighty one who came to save his people, who gathers outcasts, who gathers the lame, who gathers the broken, and who's taken away their judgments. He's cleared away their enemies so that they may be brought into his presence. Church, Jesus, on the cross, on that day, took your shame and my shame because of the deeds which we have rebelled against him. And in exchange, he leaves his perfection and his purity. What a gift. What a gift. And if that picture in reality was enough, Zephaniah is launching us into an even further day, a day when God gathers his church, all of his people from History. He brings them home to a new Jerusalem, a, a heavenly city, and God is there in their midst. This is a picture of what we see in Revelation, the silencing of sin, the silencing of the evil one and of Satan and a singing people, God's people, shoulder to shoulder, many tongues, but one song, one pure speech around the throne singing, worthy is the Lamb of God. And Jesus, who also has sung over his bride, Revelation 21, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Church, this is the greater ingathering, this final horizon of all nations, not by bloodline, not by nationality, not by perfection, that you or I could bring in to accomplish this on our own, but formed by the Spirit, purchased by the blood of Jesus. This is the glorious scene we get to witness in Zephaniah, that we get to look forward to or eternally the glad song of our Savior sings over his people and we sing in response to his love over us. What an invitation. What a picture. So there's a, a couple people I want to just encourage today through, through our text. And, and one would be the question for you, maybe here or watching, are, are you part of this day? Will you be part of this day, part of this, this remnant that Zephaniah speaks of? We saw a few evidences of what that remnant people look like. They are the ones that call on the name of the Lord. They find refuge in God. They look to him as Savior, shoulder to shoulder with others, is that you today? They are people that have their pride confronted and they've been humbled and they, they don't just give the Lord religious lip service, but they have a transformed heart because of what God has done. Is, is that you today? And they are a people that, that have, they exhibit the change to life. They, they are marked by a pursuit of holiness and obedience. Are you doing that today? The Lord would invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. Call upon him today. Find refuge in him today. Be a part of this glorious day. And the second group that comes to my, my mind is, is maybe a, a question that looms in your heart as you hear those words that the Lord sings over you. Do you believe that God sings over you today? I'm sure at some point Israel, in their return, when they came to themselves, kind of like the prodigal son in his sin, in the pigsty slop, he, he came to himself and he, he couldn't imagine going home to a father who would love him. Surely God's mercy and grace has just been exhausted for me. Maybe he delights over others and his gladness, he quiets others with his love, but to sing over me, that seems like an impossibility. You may sing to him in response to his love. You're aware of certain graces that he's given you, gifts that you experience, but it's, it seems too much to imagine him right now gladly singing over you. 
we, we can all fall victim to this. There can be this, this cavern that we fall into. We just, all we can think of is a disappointed, perpetually frustrated God. Maybe it's come through an extended period of suffering in your life or maybe an ongoing struggle with sin or the past. This is what, what John Owen would call hard thoughts of God. And he was a faithful pastor, and he knew his people struggled with that. And he, he wrote these words. Flesh and blood is apt to have very hard thoughts of him. To think he is always angry, yea, implacable. I mean, I mean, can't make him less hostile. That is not, to, not for poor creatures to draw nigh to him. Men are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think he is it is boldness to eye God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. I speak of saints. They can judge him hard, austere, severe, almost implacable, and fierce. The very worst of affections of the very worst of men and most hated by God. Is not this soul deceit from Satan? Was it not his design from the beginning to inject such thoughts of God? Assure yourself then, there is nothing more acceptable to the Father than for us to keep our hearts unto him as the eternal fountain of all that rich grace which flows out to sinners in the blood of Jesus. We are apt to have hard thoughts of God, almost find ourselves afraid to consider his love deeply. However, there is this eternal fountain of grace and love towards his people displayed in the mercy and grace of his son, Jesus. It's on full display right here for us in Zephaniah, and it's full display for us at the cross. Saints, this is how he truly is toward you. Rejoicing over you with loud singing. Would you let him quiet your heart with his love today? Fearful saint of your judgment. Let him quiet you with his love. Anxious, fearful saint. Let him quiet you with his love. Saint battling with shame and guilt, feeling outcast and oppressed. This is who he came to gather. Jesus came to gather those people into his love. He is near you. He rejoices over you with gladness today. Know how many times we, God affirms in his love, there is no longer any fear. Do not fear. Fear from enemies without. Fear from the enemies within, wrong, condemning fear of God. I believe that's why we find these words in 1 John. By this is love perfected with us. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. His perfect love given to us in Jesus dispels those fears. The initiating work on our behalf for rebels that he gathers up 
to give them purity, to remove their shame, to give, take away their guilt, and to change that shame into to praise and rest in his love. He sets his love upon us. He chooses you or I because of what he has done in Jesus Christ and because of his love alone. Israel was told this from the beginning. Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. We're told as his children, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Of all the the love songs recorded and sung in history, how many of those love songs maybe initially were burning rings of fire, but they, they waned, they fell away, quickly faded because human love is fickle. Human love is oftentimes weak, but the Lord's love is not. Not for his people, not for you. What is interesting is this word for love found here, the love that quiets his people, that moves him to sing, is not a fickle feeling love, a friendship buddy love. It's not the kind of word we use when we love pizza. The, actually, in the Greek translated Old Testament, is, we find this word love is the word agape, used to describe the sacrificial love for the good of someone else. His love moves towards the undeserved, the wayward, the weak, and the lost. Because God demonstrated his agape for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the kind of love that compels the Lord to sing over you and over me. The love flowing endlessly, endlessly from the heart of God shown in his son Jesus manifest at the cross for you and I. This is the love we need to look at and feel and experience. And it's seen in his son Jesus. Aren't you glad you've come to know that love? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. We would as my prayer this morning, we would know this deeply today, even in the times that we've doubted it. So let me pray for that. Lord, I, I pray for us today as a church. I pray for my own heart that we would, we would know this, not just in our head, not just intellectually, but to know, know within our hearts a, and understand at a very deep level the reality of this love, of this grace you have towards your people. Lord, there are those here, Lord, that I know are struggling with doubting that, that feel they've moved too far from that. Lord, I ask that you would you would allow that reality to be something that is known and understood 
and is most fully seen in your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, quiet us in your love today. Anxious hearts, Lord, that are full of worry, would you quiet our hearts in your love today? Those hearts, Lord, struggling with fear, Lord, quiet those hearts. Those hearts that are struggling with condemnation, ongoing condemnation and hard thoughts of God, would you quiet their hearts today in your love? And Lord, would you help us to anticipate this day when all our oppressors, all evil, all the things that still cause us to fear would be done away with. And we would find ourselves singing endlessly to you in your presence with one another, shoulder to shoulder, and you, Lord, are delighting over us in your love. Help us to anticipate that day more. Amen.